This morning, we are uh, continuing our series in Philippians, but this will be the second to last sermon in our series. Next Sunday, we will complete our study of the letter to the Philippians, and this fall, we will be doing a series on the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with Proverbs, uh, it is wisdom literature. And so the theme for our fall series will be ancient wisdom for modern living, ancient wisdom for modern living. So that's what you have to look forward to, I guess, if you look forward to those kinds of things, hearing me uh, speak to you. Uh, But that's the plan. For this morning, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, the passage is printed for you in the worship guide, so you can follow along there if that is easiest. So what we have seen so far in this letter that the Apostle Paul has written is that it's primarily about partnership, about friendship. Partnership and friendship in Jesus, in the gospel. Paul is writing to a church, a young church, that is supportive of him, that has sent him gifts to encourage and support him in his ministry. And this church, as a result, not only for that, but because of Paul's knowledge of them, holds a special place in Paul's heart. It was 10 years prior to the writing of this letter that Paul visited the city of Philippi. And he proclaimed the good news of Jesus, lived it out among the people uh, in Philippi. And there were a number of folks who responded to the good news of Jesus and became followers. And now 10 years later, Paul is writing a letter to encourage them in their faith, to challenge them in their faith, and to just provide an update for them. In our verses this morning, we're going to see how Paul offers some very practical suggestions on how to live in the midst of an anxious world and an anxious heart. So let me read the verses that we're looking at. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's take a moment to pray. God of peace, we pray for your peace. We pray that through your word this morning, you would enable us to access more of the peace that is spoken of in these verses. And we pray that you would do this wherever we are this morning, believing, unbelieving, unsure of what we believe. Holy Spirit, come and find us exactly in this moment where we are with whatever is going on in our lives, with all of our thoughts, with all of our anxiety, 
Come and find us and apply this word to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If we were ever living in an age of anxiety, this is it. Would you agree with that? If we were ever living in an age of anxiety, this is it. Not too long ago, uh, the New York Times or New York Post, one of the two, uh, published an article in which they referred to millennials as the anxious generation. The anxious generation. Also not too long ago, there was another article in 2017 published with the title, Over-Anxious Americans. And I want to read to you just one uh, blurb, one quote from that article to help set the stage uh, for where we're going this morning. The epidemic of anxiety is not just a mental health issue, but it is also a cultural pathology. Our way of life promotes anxiety and its consequences. I find this, uh, this quote really helpful for um, a number of reasons. And since we didn't have it on the screen this morning, let me read it for you one more time. The epidemic of anxiety is not just a mental health issue, but it is also a cultural pathology. Our way of life promotes anxiety and its consequences. The reason that I find this so helpful is because, one, it helps set the stage for the sermon this morning, but one, it um, leads, it sets me up in order to make a disclaimer at the beginning of this sermon. I am not a mental health expert. I'm not speaking to you this morning as a mental health expert. I'm speaking to you as a pastor. And what I'm addressing this morning is less of anxiety as a mental health disorder, although it really is, and time and energy continues to need to be, needs to be thought um, and applied to that. It's one of the reasons that in November we are hosting a seminar on mental health, particularly anxiety and depression. But what I'm talking about this morning is more so this cultural pathology idea, this way of life, the American life that promotes anxiety and its consequences. I want you to think about something with me. This might not be true of all of you, but you wake up in the morning. What's the first thing you do? You reach over and you grab what? Your phone. And what do you do most likely? You jump onto social media. You're going through all of your various feeds, and your blood is already boiling because you disagree with that. You disagree with this. You're upset and disturbed by how so-and-so is responding and relating to this other person. You're devastated by news coming out of other parts of the world. And this is all before 8 o'clock a.m. Your day's basically ruined already, right? This is how you begin your day. This is the posture by which you begin your day. And basically, it's a posture of life is miserable. The world is miserable. There's nothing good, true, and beautiful out there. Now, I'm overstating it a little bit, but some days that, that's a true dynamic, isn't it? I know it is for me. There are so many days that before I step foot out of the bed, I'm already mad at the world. And then we go on throughout our day, distracted by our phone, by technology, uh, unable to really engage in genuine relationship with others. And it's not only that, but it's the news around us. It's uh, even political leaders who command our attention and outrage us. We have daily reminders of these 
apocalyptic reminders of how the world is falling apart and we have every right to be angry. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? This is life in America these days. And anxiety is not just something that confronts us today. Anxiety was very real in the ancient world. Think about this with me. All of the gods and goddesses who were recognized in the Roman Empire, you had to appease all of them. There were countless gods and goddesses, and you had to be careful at every moment of not doing something that would possibly cause one of these gods and goddesses to be angry with you, to have wrath toward you. And so for this reason and many others, the ancient world was just as full of anxiety. It's into this, into the ancient world and into our world today that the Apostle Paul writes. And think very specifically now about the situation of the Philippians. They had a number of reasons to be anxious. First of all, their good friend Paul was in prison. He's writing this letter, as we've talked about throughout this series, under house arrest. They're worried about his condition, about what's going to happen to him. Not only that, but their friend Epaphroditus from their own church had gone to Paul to deliver a gift, and they hear that he is sick. And so they're concerned and anxious for him. Not only that, but as we've picked up on throughout this letter, there are threats from the outside. It wasn't easy. You were very vulnerable being a follower of Christ in the Roman Empire. And so there are all of these things that converge that would have caused the Philippians to be experiencing deep anxiety themselves. Obviously, it's so because Paul sees the need to address them on this topic. I think in these verses that Paul points us to at least four practices that reshape us and place us on a pathway to deeper inner peace. And these practices are celebration, selflessness, prayer, and meditation. So I want to look at, I want to examine each of these four practices, these four practices that place us on a pathway to deeper inner peace. And you can think about these practices like this. These are forms of resistance. They are ways to push back against our distracted, anxious age. We don't have to be a product of our culture. We don't have to be a product of all of these dynamics that we talked about. We can push back against it. And these four practices are just four ways of pushing back and resisting. Let's begin with celebration. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And then later on, look at verse 6, where Paul's talking about prayer. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So I want to link that idea of thanksgiving to this idea of rejoicing under this uh, habit or practice of celebration. Wayne, I think, last week uh, touched on this in his sermon, but he mentioned the fact that when we hear the word rejoice, we tend to think of personal joy, right? Makes sense. And that is definitely part of what Paul has in mind here. But there was a a bigger context here for uh, these ancient Christians. 
the ancient culture revolved around celebrations, around festivals. And not only the pagan world, but if you have any knowledge of the Old Testament, this might help you make sense of why there were so many festivals. Do you ever wonder about that? Like, what's this festival? And why, why is God actually commanding them to hold festivals? The point is, is that the idea of celebration, of rejoicing, of celebrating in life is really important. Let me um, put it into this context for you. I know in my own life, it, it can be so easy for me to fixate on what is broken in the world, what is negative, and not only just out there in the world, but in my own life, and it's so easy for me to dwell on it. Let me share a, a personal story from the past week to illustrate this. So last week, uh, we were on vacation uh, in Pittsburgh visiting my wife's family, and we came home on Monday, and on the way home, I was already starting to feel some anxiety. Now, if um, you don't know me, over the last couple years, I've shared a little bit about my own story and my own struggle with anxiety. I've been on and off medication um, to help me with my anxiety. Uh, it's become something very real that I wrestle with. In fact, uh, before the service, my anxiety was through the roof. So uh, this is not something that is distant and removed from me. This is part of my very personal experience. But on the way home Monday, um, my anxiety started uh, going a little bit crazy. I was thinking about how um, that very next morning, coming out of vacation, I had a church planning committee meeting for the presbytery, which I chair. So I had to be there. Not only that, but I had to do some prep work to be ready for the meeting. On the way home, I find out that the location for the meeting, we weren't going to be able to meet there. Um, so I, I'm having to figure out changing the location. Uh, I get a text from Wayne. And by the way, Wayne is a fantastic pastoral assistant, and you see, you'll see why um, I say that in a moment. But Wayne texted me asking me if I was home, and I said, not yet. We're about 30 minutes out. He said, okay, call me when you get home. This did not help my... Wayne did the right thing. You're going to see... I'll tell you about how he could have made things a lot worse for me. But still, the unknown is like, all right, what uh, church problem am I coming back to? So we get home. Uh, we walk into the house. Uh, I hear Katie not quite scream, but it, it was clear that there was not a good situation in the kitchen. Backstory was that before we went on vacation, there was a mouse appearance. When you see a mouse right before you're going on vacation, it's not good because you just feel so helpless. So when we left for vacation, as we're pulling away, all I'm thinking about is the mouse in our house. And you probably know when there's one mouse, there's not just one mouse. These mice basically just destroyed our kitchen, got into a bag of flour. There was white all over. It, it was a mess. It wasn't good. And so my anxiety now is going through the roof. Walked out of the kitchen, thought I better call Wayne. So I call Wayne, and Wayne had uh, graciously moved our car um, for us um, back and forth across the street for street sweeping throughout the week. And so Wayne tells me that um, he thinks I have a power steering fluid leak in my car. This is all happening in the span of five minutes. Now, Wayne is a great pastoral assistant. Because Wayne, could, he knew this much earlier in the week, but 
did not tell me, thankfully, that would have ruined my vacation. And he was careful to text me and say, are you home yet? Because he wanted to not tell me um, unless I was home and vacation was officially over. Well, at that point, vacation was officially over. Now, the rest of that night, I'm dwelling on all of this stuff that has gone wrong. I'm sorry that this story is long, but I I think it's helpful for you to, to relate to. I start dwelling only primarily on these things. And so guess where I am? Life stinks. Life is miserable. Why did I even come home from vacation? Why can't, life ju- why can't life just be one long vacation? And I am dwelling on these things, and I am making my anxiety worse. It was not a good place to be in. Here's why celebration and rejoicing and thanksgiving is so important, because it provides balance provides balance for us in our lives. When I was focusing only on the negative, when I was focusing only on what was wrong in life, I was creating a narrative and a story that was not completely true. Now, it is absolutely true that there is something deeply wrong with life. There's something deeply wrong within ourselves. There's something deeply wrong in the world outside of us. We're reminded of it on a daily basis as we encounter and see injustices. That is very true, but it is not the whole truth. The goodness of God's creation has not been canceled out by sin and the effects of the fall. And I think that is why, as we go back to the Old Testament, God actually commands his people to celebrate, to hold festivals, Because if not, they'll go crazy. Seriously, if not, they'll go crazy. And if we don't learn this practice of celebration, of rejoicing, of thanksgiving, we too will go crazy. We will create a story that is not completely true. It will be the fall story, and we will exclude the creation story and the redemption story along with it. Does that make sense? We talk a lot at City Church about Uh, this holistic view of God's story. It's creation, fall, and redemption, and then eventually one day, the renewal of all things. We have to hold all of these in tension, all of these together, because they are always simultaneously true. And it's only when we're holding them all together do we have a right perspective and a true perspective on life. And so God calls us as his people to rejoice, not just rejoice in general, but rejoice in the Lord. God's people, of all people, should be leading the way in celebration and rejoicing. Harold Best, the theologian, says, of all people, Christians should have the best noses, the best eyes and ears, and most open joy, widest sense of delight. Not only because we're able to appreciate the good gifts of God's creation, but also because of his faithfulness to us in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Because of what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, he has made us members by faith of God's family. We get to be God's children. And that means we have this privilege of being able to rejoice and celebrate as God's children in his kingdom, yes, the world is a mess. Yes, the world is broken and fallen. But at the same time, God is faithful and he is good and he has given us countless reasons to celebrate 
and be thankful. When we don't, not only do we believe a false story, overall story of life, but along with that, we become cynical and jaded. The best way to avoid cynicism is thanking God regularly for his good gifts, identifying what those gifts are, being able to trace the story of God's faithfulness in your life. I'm, I, I can be so poor at this at times. Uh, you know, think back to my example I just shared. I just came back from vacation, spending wonderful quality time with family, enjoying good food and drink. And just like that, I forget it all. In fact, I begin living like that didn't even happen. That wasn't even true. And I focus only on this one aspect of life. That's dangerous because that leads us down a pathway to cynicism. And and Paul here is wanting to protect us from that. And this rejoicing that he is talking about is deep. It's not just happiness. That's not what we're talking here about here. Because when we talk about happiness, at least the, the way that we commonly think of it, we can't be happy in the midst of difficulty and trial. But from Paul's perspective, you can still have joy in the midst of difficulty and trials. Remember his circumstances, writing under house arrest, not knowing whether he would be executed or set free. And Paul is still able to have joy by celebrating what is good, by celebrating God's faithfulness. And he calls the Philippians and he calls that to us as well. The next practice is selflessness. I had a hard time figuring out what to call this one. Look at verse, the, the, the very next verse, verse 5. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The reason that I had a hard time figuring out what to call this one is because this word reasonableness in the Greek is almost impossible to translate into the English. Um, There are various ways of translating. Some translations use uh, generosity, others charity, uh, others mercy, others forbearance, others gentleness, big-heartedness. There's a long list of possible words that you could use interchangeably for this word reasonableness. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, It has to do with seeking what is best for others, not just yourself. And so maybe that helps make sense of why some of those other words are used interchangeably. Charity, one idea is charity toward the fault of others. Mercy toward the failure of others. Uh, It's a word, um, it's a synonym with such words in the Greek that describe patience under adversity and patience with antagonistic people. You see where this is going. We all have challenging people in our lives, maybe people who are antagonistic toward us, people who fail us. And what Paul has in mind here is our response. How do we respond? And notice that he's not just interested in our inner response, but he's interested in our visible response. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So what he's talking about is something that is visible, something that is tangible, 
something that it can be known by others. It's not just something that you decide to do in your own heart and mind and no one else knows about it, but it has visibility. It gets fleshed out. How do you respond toward those who fail you or even harm you? And what does this have to do with anxiety? What does this have to do with the context of the passage? I wrestled with this question up until really this morning, and I don't know if my um, answer to it is really the best answer, but I struggled all week. That, that phrase, let your reasonable, and it's so hard to say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, it seems like it comes out of nowhere. So, and I was even frustrated by it a little bit, because it's like, all right, I have my and I wanted so badly to not use three points. So on the one hand, I was thankful for Paul giving me a fourth point. But at the same time, I thought, okay, celebration, I got that one. Prayer, I got that one. Meditation. But what do I do with this let your reasonableness be known to everyone? How does it fit in? Well, let's think about it this way. What becomes of you when you fixate on the wrongs that someone else has done against you? And you can't let it go. You just can't let it go. And maybe you refuse to forgive. Or maybe you say you forgive, but you still hold on to it. You will not let it go. You cannot let it go. What becomes of you? You become an anxious mess. Because you carry things with you that are too big, too weighty for you to carry alone. If we want to learn, I I mean, an amazing example of this happened a couple years ago after the the shooting in Charleston, in the the black church in Charleston. The response of the people, I mean, fairly quickly, it wasn't like they had to go away for a couple weeks to pray and reflect. It was almost immediate, the response of forgiveness, of mercy uh, toward the fault of another person. And we're not just talking a minor mess up, right? It was remarkable. And, And it's not just that example. In general, I actually think, and I've been learning this for a while now, the best place to learn this particular practice is from the black church, from our African American brothers and sisters, because they know how to do this well. But if we don't do it well, if we don't learn this practice we become people of great, intense anxiety because we're holding things against people with no recourse for what to do because we can't possibly make it right when we do that. We can't possibly move in another direction. It enslaves us. And so think of the Philippians, antagonism, you know, probably coming in at least two different directions, one from the outside Roman Empire, who was hostile toward the Christian faith and Christians. So there was that, but also possibly even beginning to make its way into the church, going back to uh, the end of chapter 3. We referred to them as Judaizers. Um, If you weren't here for that, uh, you can go back and listen. I'm not going to take the time now to go back into that, but I'll just say that there were possibly pockets of people even making their way into the Philippian church that were being antagonistic. And so this was real for the Philippians. And Paul says to them, let this, whatever word you want to use, be known to everyone. 
May it actually be an example of Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. The theme of humility has come up time and time again throughout this letter. And so even though the word here isn't precisely humility, it's, it's along that line of thought. The next practice that Paul lays out for us is prayer. Look at verse 6. Or even starting with the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I want to be, I want to clarify something before I go into this. If you are struggling deeply with anxiety and depression, don't hear me saying all you need to do is pray more. Praying more did not work for me by itself. I, I, I encourage you to seek out help from a professional. Um, I, I mentioned that um, I've been on and off medication, um, particularly last year as I went into my sabbatical summer. When May hit, I actually had to go into the emergency room because I was in such bad shape. I had been off of medication for um, almost a year at that point, and it was so helpful for me to go back onto it. Now, yes, um, our culture is over-medicated in general and all of that, but at the same time, God has given us good gifts. He's given us people of expertise in all areas of life. And so just hear me saying, even just for my own personal example and story, I am not saying if you are anxious and depressed, all you need to do is pray more and it will make things go away. Actually, if you try that, you may end up in a worse condition because you don't seek out the additional help that you need. But this promise from Scripture, the Lord is at hand. That's where this begins. Now, this connects the last point um, and the last point about reasonable, what was the word we used? Uh, uh, What what was the habit? Selflessness. Um, It connects back to selflessness, but also connects forward to this point about prayer. The Lord is at hand. Now, there's a lot of differences in in opinions about what exactly does this mean? Does this refer to the fact that God is physically or, or spiritually present with us? Or does it refer to the fact that one day the Lord's return is at hand? Jesus will return to make everything right and um, bring about judgment. I, I, I think that it could be both. Paul doesn't explicitly tell us. Both can make sense in the context, particularly as it relates back to the selflessness point. The reminder that Jesus will return to make all things right is a reminder that justice ultimately lies with him, that we don't have to feel the need um, to hold people's faults against them when they, they harm us. So that could make sense. But also going into this next point, God is really present with us to help us in our time of need. He is at hand. He is present. He is with us. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. In everything, by prayer. You know, um, particularly you see it um, among younger people. If we were to go down to you know, you hear stories. If we were to go down to City Church Kids and maybe um, there's a time of prayer, prayer requests are taking, 
are taken, and you'll get all kinds of different prayer requests, right? You know, the, the one about um, my cat dying, th- those kinds of things. And it can be so easy for us to think, oh, geez, yeah, that's not really important. We don't need to pray about that, but okay, I acknowledge that you said it. And God says everything, big things and small things alike. We are God's children, and God wants us to bring our pleas to him. Whatever is weighing on us, whatever we are anxious about is fair game. God does not have that reaction toward us. Because if he had that reaction toward us, it would be his reaction toward us about everything. Are you serious? You're bringing, I I got that. Why are you letting that worry you? That's not how God responds to his children. He invites us to come. Think about Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't be anxious. It's very possible that Paul is remembering the teaching of Jesus as he writes this portion of the letter to the Philippians. Big and small, all of life matters to God. And what challenges me here is when I get into my funks, like the funk that I was in on Monday night. Now, I feel ashamed. I'm a pastor, but this is still true of me. It can take me so long to finally come around to prayer. Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't have to carry this all myself. I can actually bring this to God. But it's this, it's this cultural pathology of anxiety, I think, plays into this, that we are so ingrained to figure things out on our own, to fix things on our own, and that plays into this. And so it's almost like I'm self-absorbed, and I know I can, I can get right without help, but I, I can't, and I don't need to. That just breeds more and more anxiety. God says, come to me with what is on your heart. Bring your anxieties to me. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, that phrase, in Christ Jesus. It implies faith. It implies relationship with and to Jesus, one of intimacy, one of knowing him, and one of being secure in him. But this this promise, this language of a peace that surpasses all understanding, is this not the peace that we all long for? I mean, how can you not read that and at least some part of you just yearn and long for that, for more of that? I know that every time, and even now, just looking at it again and thinking about it, there's this longing within me. I want to know the peace that surpasses understanding, the peace that guards my heart and my mind. Because if you are one who struggles with things like anxiety and depression, you long for something to guard your mind, to guard your thoughts. It's interesting to think about this. We don't know for sure. But Paul could, the the word that he uses is a military term. Now, remember Paul's situation, under house arrest, being guarded by prisoners. Um, In fact, most likely he is shackled to a prisoner in his situation under house arrest. So maybe when he um, is meditating on this, he thinks in the same way that he's being guarded by um, a soldier, that he, that the peace of God can guard our hearts and our minds in the same way. 
The last practice, meditation. What is meant by meditation? Well, look at verses 8 through 9. I want to read these again um, just for a refresher. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Meditate on these things. This idea of meditation has to do with reflecting on what is good, true, and beautiful. And where do we learn an increasing knowledge of what is good, true, and beautiful? It's in the story of Scripture, the story that tells us the truth about life, that, include, that, that holds together all of these aspects of the story in our life experience, creation, fall, and redemption. Reflect on what is good, true, and beautiful. I wish that I had time to go through each of these particular words, but these are virtues. These are are things that bring out beauty. Now, think about what we so commonly face in life. You jump on your news feed, and you're reminded of the opposite. I mean, every once in a while, you'll come, you, you know, somebody will share that story, and they'll, and they'll always preface it. You usually don't find good things like this on social media, but look at this story. But it's so often you're reminded of everything that is ugly, everything that is wicked, everything that is wrong with the world. Now, I am not saying that technology is evil, that you need to get rid of all of your social media accounts. Um, I'm tempted to, but I probably won't. Um, But I do know this, that I need to grow in the discipline of being on social media less than I am. Now, I'm I'm more of a stalker. Does that make you feel awkward that is your pastor? I I never post, but I'm just watching what you post. And so I know all about being reminded of what is wrong. I'm just joking. But this is a practice, like the others, meditation, meditating on God's word, coming to God's word and being reminded of what is ultimately true. Because when we focus and dwell on only the negative, we forget the true story. As we've talked about, we forget God's goodness. We fail to celebrate it. Uh, I forget what book this quote came from. Uh, I think it comes from an author named Alan Noble. He says, the person I'm most uncomfortable being alone with is myself. And that's okay, because I've become very good at avoiding myself. For example, if I get stuck alone on an elevator and I start to feel that anxiety, the dread of having to examine my life even for a minute, I just take out my phone and poof, it's gone. Self-avoidance is probably my most advanced skill set. You relate to that at all? It goes on, I've developed it over the years in response to the burden of being alone, which can bring up so many unsettling truths. Of course, I have plenty of help from the rest of society. I'm always being encouraged to read something, to do something, to watch something, or to buy something new. It's an unspoken but mutually agreed upon truth for modern people that being alone with our thoughts is disturbing. This constant bombardment of read something, do something, 
it makes us increasingly anxious. It dehumanizes us, and it doesn't have to be. And this is where we end. It doesn't have to be. But here's the deal. In order to grow in these practices, now, with each practice, we could have said a lot more, but to grow in each of these practices of celebration, of selflessness, of prayer, and meditation, we have to carve out time. There's no way around it. And probably as I said that, you thought, oh, I know. It's that one thing I don't have. You do have it. I do have it. And, and here's where I've been challenged um, lately. All of the incessant just scrolling through my feed, um, taking out my phone, checking my email, my texts, feeling like, oh, I received this text an hour ago, and it's been an hour. They're going to think that I hate them if I don't respond. We, we don't have to be like that. But we, we do all of these other things that take up time. And so what if we found ways to do less of those things in order to do more of these things, which are actually going to cultivate virtue within us? Because those other things that we're doing, scrolling through our news feed, being obsessed with technology incessantly, those things are shaping us. They're shaping us. And at the end of the day, they make, us less, they make us more and more anxious, more and more depressed, and more and more angry at the world, whether we are in touch with it or not. And so what if you just tried for starting simply 20 minutes a day, no phone, no technology, and you're just going to sit alone with God, with your thoughts, with his word, and celebrate? Start there. Give thanks to God for the good gifts that are in your life. Maybe ask him to show you how to live more selflessly. Maybe to help you pinpoint um, people that you're actually holding grudges against because of, of ways that they have harmed you. To pray. Prayer doesn't have to be this sophisticated thing. It can just simply be, okay, God, I'm going to tell you right now everything that I'm feeling, everything that's on my heart and my mind, blah, here it is. God is big enough to handle it. And ask him to work in the midst of it, to help you to know his peace more and more, to help you know him. And to meditate on the truths of his word, to be reminded of, wait, no, this lie that I'm believing about myself, this lie that I'm believing about the world, it's not true. Here's what is true. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sit with this truth for a while. And see how Paul ends. He calls the Philippians to look at his own life, how he has embodied these things, because these are embodied practices. We, we, we have to grow in them. like They're skills like anything else. But he says, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's not saying that if you do these practices, you can earn God's presence, favor, and peace. We know that that is not the case even from this letter. God's peace, his favor, his presence is ours through faith in who Christ is and what he's done for us. But what Paul is saying is that the way that we access that peace the way that we experience more and more of that peace 
is through practices such as these. And as you engage in these practices, you will not only know peace, but you will increasingly know the God of peace. Let's pray. God of peace, give us a deeper experience of your peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to cultivate these practices in our lives, that we would become people who are less and less distracted and more and more focused on what is true, good, and beautiful as it is presented to us in your word. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters uh, in this place this morning who are struggling intensely with anxiety and depression. Meet them in that. I pray that they would know your peace, and I pray that you would um, maybe give them courage to seek out the help that they have never sought out. Father, we trust that you are with us as your word promises. Um, Help us, again, to know your presence, and to not only know your presence, but to know you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.